That's a good one. Yeah. We're like uh, like uh, the ghosts of Christmas, the many faces of Christmas. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, the father, son, and the holy Christmas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a sounds like a Christmas action movie or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it could be. Well, it could um, be. Yeah. Only this is going to air like way past Christmas, but whatever. Maybe it will. Yeah, Actually, no, maybe not. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Christmas will still be fresh in everyone's mind. Anyways, welcome everyone to my weird little podcast. Yeah. Podcast where we talk about all things weird. And tonight we are talking about uh, insane asylums, um, particularly. So, um, I don't know. I think this one should be called the one where Nellie goes crazy or the, the night that Nellie went crazy or something like that, <laughs> um, which has to do more with my story. But uh, what are you what are you talking about? Okay. Again? I finally know what I'm talking about because I didn't that other night I was talking to you guys, but I do oh, now. Yeah. I knew what I wanted to talk about, but I just could not, for the life of me, remember the name. Uh, well, I'm also talking about insanity uh, surrounding in the asylum. Uh, so I'm talking about the, um, it was referred to uh, as the Dunning Insane Asylum commonly back in Chicago uh, in the 1800s. And I did not know that its origins went that far back. So yeah, I learned a lot of interesting stuff, but that's what I'm gonna be talking about. Very cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I think you should go first, just- Okay, yeah. It out. I would, Mine is a little more lighthearted. Um, so we're. I feel like yours is not. I'm just gonna assume <laughs> because when when you talk about insane asylums and uh, any time prior to, I don't know, the 1980s, um, it can get pretty grim. Like all the way up to like one flew over the cuckoo's nest like era, it's pretty grim. Yeah. Even now, even nowadays, we're still like learning a whole lot about mental health and like Mm -hmm. how to balance medication with therapy, with diet you know yeah. even just like identifying mental disorders you know yeah there's uh there's so many that have still not been identified and you know um i'm like very interested in a uh, disassociative identity disorder which yeah. is still not categorized as an actual disorder uh it, many people believe that it's fake right but how horrible would that be if it wasn't? And you're some person who has this, you know, and yeah, I mean, I'm almost positive it exists because so there's so many accounts of it, but that's mm-hmm. just me coming from, I don't know, an audience perspective an outsider's perspective, but anyway, yeah. that's yeah. something that's still, and portrayed in the media as something that's really inaccurate. So Definitely. I digress. Yeah. I digress. <laughs> You're good. It's very interesting. I, I'm with you on that. I would like to know more about it myself, yeah. but my, yeah, I don't know too much about it. So, yeah. <laughs> I watch too much YouTube. I really do. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, YouTube's, it's good sometimes. Um, 
is oh. a, a source. Sorry, like yeah. I was going to wear my glasses, yeah. but I realized I'm not going yet, so I don't need to wear them quite yet. <laughs> but I feel like Elton John, I was going to say I look like Elton John meets Zach Bagans, just like slightly, um, but I don't I know. Think, <laughs> that sounds pretty good to me. Um, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think that's an accurate oh, okay. description. Anyways. <laughs> okay, shall I start? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, you ready? Yeah? Yes. I'm okay. prepared. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> no, I just mean like when you were just talking about the subject matter, yes, you're exactly correct with everything that you were saying. So yeah, it will be definitely a little darker details, but that's what everyone wants to hear, isn't it? So we drink some of my beer, my Bud Light line. <laughs> oh here before we start. Nice. I've got a Lagunitas, little something, as long nice. as we're plugging brands. Yes, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Light Lime, please sponsor me. I'm the only <laughs> one who drinks this stuff, I swear. <laughs> Pat's got the Miller High Life, the champagne of beers. He's oh, nice. <laughs> Very nice. Well, that, that's classy. So. Tried to get, like, the close-up, you know. <laughs> Well, here's Lagunitas. If you're looking for something very hoppy. Um, okay. So, yes, let me get into it. Okay. So, yes, uh, I chose this topic specifically because um, I have very vivid associations with um, kind of just being in the area. Uh, this is back in Chicago. And like I said, I'm talking about the uh, Dunning Insane Asylum. But when I was younger, I never knew that uh, if we were driving by in the car, it was mostly on the way to my aunt's house because she lived in that area. Uh, but we would drive past and I would always get a really weird feeling and I didn't know why. And now I know why, <laughs> because um, back on this bit of, this is a large swath of land and it's on the Northwest side of Chicago. And it's in a neighborhood that's, uh, it's commonly referred to as Dunning. So I'll get more into the name in a little bit, but um, that's the, that's the neighborhood. And it's not too far from where I grew up. It's probably about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes North of where I grew up. Um, and so, like I said, we would be driving in the car on the way to my aunt's house and drive past this series of buildings and this section of land. And yeah, I always just got a really eerie feeling every time. Um, so the history of it is very interesting um, to me being from there and hopefully it will be to everyone else. I think it will be. <laughs> um, so it start. It didn't start out as an insane asylum. It started out as a home for uh, essentially the city's poorest people, and there were also a series of three cemeteries uh, that were also located on the land. And uh, we'll we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but let me give you a little background on the reputation of Dunning. Uh, this is a quote from uh, 
a historian that wrote a book called Challenging Chicago. And his name is Perry Duis. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, this is what he had to say about Dunning. For many generations of Chicago children, bad behavior came to a halt with a stern warning. Be careful or you're going to Dunning. The prospect sent shivers. <laughs> yeah. The prospect sent shivers down the spines of youngsters who regarded it as the most dreaded place imaginable. So like I said, that came from his book um, where he was talking about various things in Chicago and Dunning was one of them. Um, and I came to find out that Dunning uh, was like he said, used to kind of scare children into good behavior. But what I didn't know is that it started in Chicago as early as the 30s and 40s and continued onward into the 50s and 60s. And um, this was a word I never heard, though, because I didn't, um, I guess because we lived far enough away from the area. I don't know either that or my parents never was were going to talk about a mental institution. So <laughs> uh, I guess that's why they they never used that threat on me or my brother. Um, but other kids apparently knew of it well. Um, so the complex itself it occupied 320 acres of land, and that was between for. Anyone who knows the area it was between Irving Park Road and Montrose and west from Narragansett Avenue to Oak Park Avenue. And the interesting thing is it was never actually named Dunning. Uh, it was basically a nickname that was given to the whole structure itself of the asylum. Uh, but it, it was called Dunning because it was a property that the property south of the area was owned by the Dunning family. And uh, there was also a railroad stop named Dunning Station that was nearby. So people just started calling the asylum Dunning, and that's just how it was referred to, um, probably even today, even though it's no longer there. But um, it opened in 1854, and it was known then as the Cook County Infirmary. And it was basically a poor farm and what they called an almshouse. So the doors were open to people who fell on hard times, weren't able to care for themselves, weren't able to pay their bills. They had the opportunity to go to, um, to this place. I'm just gonna refer to it as Dunning uh, for the rest of the time, just uh, so we're not too confused. <laughs> Uh, there weren't many services provided there. It was just a place to sleep and there was food that was provided, but the mental health services were not really uh, there. They weren't really available and they certainly weren't what they should be. But that is really awful because unfortunately many mentally ill people were sent here frequently. Uh and in 1870, the, uh, the county actually separated, uh, they, they built the insane asylum separate on the same grounds 
So there was the poor house and then there was the insane asylum, basically. Um, there were opposing opinions on why the mentally ill could be sent here. Some people felt that it was to isolate people from society and from the city of Chicago. They just wanted to remove them from the city. Other people felt that it was to uh, de-stress people from their lifestyles, whatever was causing them pain or agony. They, they could remove themselves and put themselves in a more country-style setting because definitely uh, in 1854, there were not that area where Dunning stood. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not saying this right. Where, where it stands today, um, back then, there just wasn't really anything around there. So it was very country, um, not like it, how suburban it is now. Um, the reality, unfortunately, was that Dunning was badly overcrowded and the patients were neglected and abused. You could think of this place as the prototypical evil dark asylum of literature. And that is a direct quote from a man named Joseph Mayer. And he was a clinical psychologist who, um, who also wrote a book, An Illustrated History of Illinois, Public Mental Health Services. So, and he actually said that he interned for a while um, when he was younger in his practice. Uh, he interned there in like the 60s. Uh, and so he has a lot of experience. So, but thinking back on the early days, yeah, it was like you said, your basic version of health. Um, so people were not fed well. There was terrible food and it was infested with uh, weevils. There was inadequate medical care. They had ramshackle buildings, vermin-filled rooms, and there was just a terrible stench everywhere. And the problems were largely due to political corruption. Oh, it doesn't sound like Chicago at all to me. No, <laughs> definitely <laughs> corrupt. Uh, I mean, come on, my Chicagoans, you know the city still has many problems in that area. So um, they, they definitely did at that time. Uh, what's that? I was going to say our last episode that we just recorded was on the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So there's yes. right. yeah, exactly. just yeah. slight, just a little bit on that. <laughs> just but. slightly on the terrible corruption. Yes. Yeah. And we still have that going on. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, that was definitely helpful. Ha happening then, excuse me, people were hired and holding jobs that were completely unqualified for those jobs. Uh, it was said that the employees got drunk on duty. They were partying and dancing late at night in the asylum. I'm trying to imagine all of this going on. Oh my God. <laughs> it paints a very crazy picture in my mind, but I can actually yeah. believe it. Um, the asylum's top authorities use taxpayer money to decorate their offices and hold lavish parties, while, of course, the patients were suffering in squalor in their ramshackle buildings with their horrible food and their vermin-infested rooms. So, yeah, that's definitely all smacks of corruption. Now, yeah. this, this quote is... 
the most disturbing to me and it made the biggest impression on me. It was, Dunning was described as, quote, a tomb for the living. And reading everything that I read, it definitely accurately describes that. That is a quote from a man named Richard Prendergast, and he was a Cook County judge. And that was from an 1889 court case that he was commenting on about Dunning. So, yeah, I think it's pretty accurate. He, at the time of the court case, he was actually um, criticizing the asylum because he said this asylum essentially is squeezing like, you know, a thousand plus patients into a space that's only good for about 500 people. So essentially that's how it's described throughout everything I read that people were just packed in together like animals and there was no room for for anybody to move basically. Uh, doctors gave patients sedatives such as chloral hydrate to simply knock them out. And chloral hydrate, if anyone out there knows, is uh, what was essentially called, uh, oh, is it, it was it was in a Mickey Finn. So like they used to talk about, oh, that person got a Mickey or a Mickey Finn at a bar. That's what they're talking about. Yeah, slip you a Mickey. Yeah. So, and I didn't actually know that. That was <laughs> that was new information to me. I, I heard of slipping a Mickey, but I didn't know it was um, with chloral hydrate. And then in 1886, there was a state investigation found uh, that one sedative of mixture was made up of chloral hydrate, cannabis, hops, and potash. So I don't know about you guys, but that sounds just <laughs> completely awful. Um, maybe except for the cannabis, but <laughs> yeah, and the hops. That sounds awesome or not? Uh, yeah, <laughs> but that was right. that was what. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know what it would taste like, but I mean, the cannabis yeah. and the hops I mean, give it some some promise, but <laughs> we went to uh, the golden tiki last night. We drank a drink called demon semen. So that's <laughs> wow. It was, was it good? It was slightly salty. It was uh, tastes like coconut with salt. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Well, you'll have to tell me more about that later. Um, <laughs> We'll get you one when, next time you visit. Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, yes, but last time I accepted the drink from you in Vegas, I that was the end oh, of yeah. me. It's small. It's small. Okay, smaller? Okay. Not that yeah. whatever it was, yardstick thing. Yard, yard drink. Uh, yeah. yes. it, don't it, try it, that. It wasn't too bad. What? What? Oh, sorry. I, I just that. said she, it wasn't what you I said she. Uh, there's uh, people commenting, watching you guys. Uh, but Kai was like, "It wasn't too bad, to be honest, about the demon scene." <laughs> oh, <damn>. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! What was that coconut stuff at Hard Rock? We used to put in everything that in that white bottle, the squeezy bottle that we put in like every single drink, like simple syrup, maybe. Yeah. No. Yeah, but it was like coconut syrup. 
that oh. it tasted like that. It tasted like that, which I remember actually really liking that, even oh, okay. though it's just a mixer, but. Oh, I don't know. I wasn't ever a bartender, but maybe like the stuff they used in like the, oh God, I can't even remember the drinks now, but like the yeah. Blue Hawaii or whatever. Yeah. Electric FYI, drink. FYI, half the drinks are tap water um, because half hard the drinks rock? have that at Hard Rock. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or are basically tap water because our sweet and sour is like seventy-five oh. percent tap water, and the sweet and sour is like the main ingredient for half the drinks that oh, they make. God. Wow. Anyways, anyways, what a weird that. <laughs> All right, no, no, you're good. Okay, get it. Yes, getting yeah. back to the interesting concoctions that they served at Dunning Asylum. Um, in addition mm-hmm. to their sedative cocktail, they also we're serving two kegs of beer a day. And the patients and employees were both drinking from those kegs. And who knows how, like, what the quality of that beer was. Uh, So, but everyone was getting drunk and I guess apparently partying into the night. So does it sound like a great place for your mental health? Oh, definitely. Um, So, it, this is kind of a little more of the grim aspect of what went on during that time. In 1897, there were Chicago newspapers that were reporting stories of locals who had mental illnesses and even giving details, including their names and what symptoms they might have. And this was just public, published like it was, you know, regular news. (laughs) I just, I can't believe I found that completely appalling. Um, But, you know, it happened. So uh, I found a few examples that I wanted to share with you guys of people that were admitted to Dunning at the time. Um, So, and this was the stuff that was, like I said, published in the newspaper. So we have Frank Johnson, who was committed to Dunning after he cut off his right hand in a fit of religious mania. And he was quoted as saying, I think he will grow again. And he told, yes, he told the judge that. So off to Dunning. Then there was Fred, Frederica W, 35 years old. Some of them had ages. Uh, She was found by police sitting in a park. And she said she was, quote, searching for a prince who had promised her marriage. So a lovely sentiment, but uh, uh, I guess the policeman found her crazy. So off to Dunning. Then there was William L., 45. Uh, William definitely got a really raw end of the deal here when he was arrested, when police found him, quote, wandering about the boulevards, ogling women and girls. Uh, I mean, it's okay. Perhaps he should have been locked up, but uh, the judge declared that he should go to Dunning after hearing those simple case details. So can you imagine today? (laughs) I mean, they'd have to be locking everyone up right and left. So, um, I just thought that that was 
definitely an extreme example, um, but I don't know. Uh, did William deserve to go there? Uh, I wasn't the judge on that case. Uh, so the they actually had a hospital car train that would transport, it was used to transport um, people from the Cook County Detention Hospital to Dunning. And they really did call it, quote, the crazy train. Um, there were guards that were on both ends of the train so people could not get out of the train. And they just shipped them all off there. Uh, the patients were described as suffering from everything that was labeled under the the umbrella term of insanity. And they were labeled everything from having uh, melancholia. Um, masturbation apparently was, uh, uh, it's described as a quote, exciting cause of insanity by the doctors. Uh, yeah. And then there was also, um, they would term if you had religious excitement or domestic trouble, sunstrokes, disappointment in love, alcohol, abortion, narcotics, puberty, and overwork. So Every, everybody goes, okay, all right. Yeah, you could see that um, you could get hauled away for just about anything, it appears. Yeah. Uh, just for living your life. So that's pretty disturbing and frightening. Um, but that was actually the stuff surrounding the history of Dunning and the things that happened to people at that time. But it gets even more grim and grisly as we discover and this is what made me feel so uneasy all those years. I mean, apart from now learning the history of knowing that, you know, all these people got committed here and had to go to this horrible place and so many abuses were occurring. But like I said, I mentioned in the beginning that there were cemeteries and that's the part that I'm going to get into now. And that's the part why I was disturbed because... It was found that there were essentially three cemeteries on the land, and there's many, many unmarked graves. Um, and still to this day, they essentially built over all of those graves. So anything else that was on the land, uh, there's some apartments, uh, condos, and there's a new medical facility uh, which still exists. Um, but that was all built over sacred ground, more or less. Um, so that's where everyone, like I said before, that was poor in Cook County or who lived at the poor house there on the, on the, um, on the section of land, anyone who died there who couldn't afford burial costs in Cook County, they were buried there, everyone. So some of the bodies uh, were even moved from the Chicago City Cemetery, which is underneath current day Lincoln Park. So, and that's something you can see too, if anyone's interested out there, if you're visiting Chicago and you 
happen to be in Lincoln Park and you're near the zoo, there is a marker. Uh, it's over closer to North Avenue, but I saw it actually recently um, when in the summer. Um, I was just walking over there and I didn't even know that the marker was there, but it said this is the spot uh, of the old cemetery. So anybody who's interested, go check that out for sure. Um, <clears throat> but they moved those bodies and then there were also bodies there that were from the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. And they estimate maybe 117 people were buried there from that. Civil War veterans, believe it or not, were buried there. Um, there was a man named Johann Hawk, who uh, he was a bigamist, and he was believed to have married 30 women and married at least, or uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> married. <laughs> he was believed to marry 30 women and murder at least 10 of them. Uh, so he was hung at Cook County Jail in 1906. And after he died, there were no cemeteries that wanted to bury him. They refused to, to have his body buried there. So consequentially, he was buried anonymously on the land uh, that we're speaking about now. Um, there was also, which I found very interesting and I didn't know about, there was also body stealing and selling going on. And that was a big issue in 1897. And for anybody else that's been listening to our podcast or following anything about this kind of stuff, that might sound familiar to what H.H. Holmes did just a few years earlier. Um, he was also steal stealing corpses and selling them. And there was in fact a man named Henry Ulrich Dunning he was a, or I'm sorry, his name was Henry Ulrich, and he worked at Dunning. He was a watchman, and he was convicted of selling corpses to a man named Dr. William Smith, who was a medical professor in Missouri. And it was pretty grim what I was reading, because Henry actually was communicating with this doctor frequently, and he went so far as to even say that he would, quote, kill one of the freaks for him and sell him the body. And the doctor said, well, no, I don't, I don't want you to kill anybody. I'll just take any bodies that may die. Um, and basically Henry Ulrich told him, well, that's okay. They'll probably die in the killer part of the ward, the killer part of the ward. So the officials, have denied that there was ever any killer part of the ward, but there very, very well may have been. Um, and we at least know that one person was uh, committing these types of crimes. So you can imagine it, it, it might have happened with others. So all of this actually doesn't come to a halt, I will say, but the state does take over in 1912. And when the state took over the ownership of Dunning, they changed the name to Chicago State Hospital. And that is ended the scandals that were surrounding all the corruption. That ended. So there were no more, you know, as far as we knew, there weren't those kind of rampant, um, you know, political 
kind of corruptions going on, but abuses still were occurring, of course. And um, some of you may be familiar with some of the therapies that were um, that were used commonly in the day, and they're all the most horrible ones that you know about: the hydrotherapy, uh, fever treatments. The patients uh, were able to receive lobotomies, even though they did not receive any there, but they were sent elsewhere uh, to receive lobotomies. And there was also, of course, electroshock therapy. And in 1970, the Chicago State Hospital merged with the Charles F. Reed Zone Center and so ever since 1970, it's been known as the Chicago Reed Mental Health Center. The problem started with the bodies in 1989 when construction workers began to find bodies or pieces of bodies or something, you know, that looked like it could be a piece of a body and it was they were all buried underneath the land. So it was actually a backhoe operator that found, I think, one of the most, um, I don't think exciting is the right word, but it certainly was fascinating. Um, so, so this backhoe operator was doing construction, digging, and he found the corpse of a Civil War veteran that was pretty much still intact uh, because it had been embalmed with arsenic. And he was able to pick out details like that the man had red hair, he had a mustache, he was certainly wearing a military jacket. But when he was found by the backhoe operator, um, the operation of the backhoe caused his body to be completely cut in half. <laughs> and that's how he was discovered. Um, there was an archaeologist named uh, D David Keene and he determined that the location of uh, one of the cemeteries was very close by. It was on the northwest corner of Belle Plain and Nina Avenue, so just north of, of the area I'm talking about. And the, that property was set aside, and it's known today as the Reed Dunning Memorial Park. It was dedicated in 2002. So they actually were able to. Um, use that land to, I mean, in a quiet way, I guess, kind of commemorate finally some of these bodies uh, that were found. And the crazy thing about the land where the park is, is it's only the second oldest of the three cemeteries on the ground. Um, between 1912 and 1960, the state built on the land without regard for the buried bodies. And they just built right on top of graves. So we know that this kind of stuff happens frequently, um, but it's just, it's just creepy. That's all I have to say. As someone growing up in the area and they came up with an actual number for how many bodies uh, are estimated to have been there. And they came up with an estimate of about 38,000 bodies that were underground in unmarked graves or had various parts of them missing. Um, 
yeah. So <laughs> to this day, uh, there's still, I don't think, a lot of knowledge about it. I mean, excuse me, I myself found out so much just through doing this research, but I've actually been interested in this topic for, for a while now. I can remember, you know, over 10 years ago, probably like 2008 or 2009, somewhere around there, um, becoming interested in the area because there was a lot of abandoned buildings and stuff. And I, I was like, you know, what, what happened here? Like what's going on here? But whenever I would do an internet search at that time, there was not a lot of information available about it, but there is now. Um, so uh, if you are further interested on finding out about more about the history of the Dunning Insane Asylum and the whole area, definitely um, there's some good articles out there. The, the main uh, article that I got most of my information from was an article from um, WBEZ uh, in Chicago and uh, there's a segment that they do called Curious City, and the article is called The Story of Dunning, A Tomb for the Living. And it was written by a journalist and author named uh, Robert Lorzel. Um, and he also wrote another book, which I'm interested in reading. It's called Alchemy of Bones, Chicago's Lutgart Murder Case of 1897. So that's a completely unrelated case, but also really interesting. And that one is commonly referred to as um, the sausage fat murders. So maybe that's another topic for another day. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the last thing I want to leave you with, my impressions on Dunning. Um, yeah, you can imagine it's majorly, majorly haunted. Um, I still never get a good feeling when I'm in that area. And there's many reports of people that, that live there. Um, in the area that, you know, maybe they're living in a condo that's over the grounds, or I know that there's um, a shopping center in the, in the corner, in one of the corners. And um, I can just imagine that there must be things happening there. Um, people have yeah. left their residences, according to some people, because they were being, you know, plagued by paranormal things like drawers opening, doors shutting, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely interested to still go back to the area today and kind of look around more. Um, and uh, the Chicago Reed Mental Health Center uh, that is, was the final building is still there today. Um, I looked it up. They are still accepting patients, but... Um, I wouldn't recommend going there. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it has any good reviews at all. <laughs> the reviews are awful. Oh, so um, yeah, for your mental health in Chicago, please, please go elsewhere. I don't, I think there's a better place for you to go. Uh, I wouldn't go there. Uh, so yeah, that's, and there apparently, um, I was reading another article that, um, Let's see, as, as recently as 2018, there were plans, and I, I don't know if they've gone through with them yet, but there were plans then to uh, build a new high school, a new Chicago high school on some portion of the ground. And I'm thinking, 
yeah, it's not a good idea. <laughs> I don't think they should do that. But, you know, perhaps if they've gotten all the bodies up out of that area, but um, it seems like it seems like they really haven't worked out that whole situation. So anyway, just, um, yeah, that was my experience with that. Very creepy to me, but I'm so glad that I know more now about the whole, um, the area as a whole, because it definitely makes more sense now when I put it all into context. Had no idea that that was ever there, nor would I have ever heard about it if I never did any research. Because like I said, I, you know, I'm going to have to ask my father because he did grow up, uh, you know, in the area as well. And I'm going to ask him if that was ever something that he heard about, because like, if he did, he certainly never brought it up to us. <laughs> so <laughs> not like something you would casually pass on, but yeah, I just, I'm still fascinated with it, obviously. So that was what I wanted to share with everybody. Thank you for listening. <laughs> you sharing yeah. that. that was really uh, grim. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But you said yours is not as grim, right? I no, mean, I mean, it gets there for like a minute, but definitely not that. Not yeah. like that at all. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So my story's not quite as um grim and uh dismal um it did it gets there for a minute but i'm going to talk about the very wonderful amazing nelly bly oh um, yeah so i've heard of her heard her story from uh well i'd, I'd heard about her previously i have no idea where i found out about her probably some youtube thing I was watching, but then I was watching American Horror Story Asylum, and there's a character that Sarah Paulson plays that's very heavily uh, based off of Nellie Bly, yes. and I kept, I kept thinking, like, this is a real person. I know this story. Where do I know this story from? I know she's a real person as I'm, like, watching this, and... It wasn't until later that, like, I'd watched an uh, episode of Drunk History that I was like, see, she's real. It existed. It was real. I didn't make that up. <laughs> is a real person. I swear yeah. that this is something that really happened. So there's actually <laughs> two episodes of Drunk History that are actually based off of Nellie, Br Nellie Bly because, like, she had she did some really incredible stuff in her life and um you know uh most people either talk about one of these incredible events or the other very rarely do they talk about both in the same like youtube video or same documentary they're either say that she did one of these things or the other but i'm gonna get into them and tell you about them so Elizabeth Jane Cochran was born on May 5th, 1864 in Cochran Mills, now part of the Pittsburgh suburb of Burrell Township in Armstrong County, Pennsylvania. Uh, so her father, Michael Cochran, was born about 1810 and started out as a laborer and a mill worker before buying the local mill and most of the, most of the land surrounding 
his family farmhouse. Uh, he later became a merchant, postmaster, associate justice at Cochrane Mills, which he which was named after him in Pennsylvania. Michael married twice. He had 10 children with his first wife, Catherine Murphy, and five more children, including Elizabeth Cochran, with his second wife, Mary Jane Kennedy. But Michael Cochran, uh, Michael Cochran's father had immigrated from the county of Londonbury, Ireland in the 1790s, but he died in 1871 when Elizabeth was just six. So most of Elizabeth's life, she, her, her mother worked to take care of the kids. So she never grew up with this idea that women were in the household, just taking care of kids and just in the home. Like her mother worked her whole time, her entire life. The children worked to support the family. And Elizabeth also had to work uh, as well many times. So uh, I thought this was a fun little thing, though, about Elizabeth. As a young girl, Elizabeth was often called Pinky because she so frequently wore that color, which was a little uncommon that people even wore color at this time. Like, this is like, what is this, the 1880s, which is like around the Victorian age, even though this is America, I guess these people aren't Victorians because they're not under the like reign of Queen Victoria. But like, if, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know at least something about the Victorians and that they're a weird bunch uh, (laughs) and fascinating, but black was extreme. Black was extremely fashionable and people really didn't wear colors, especially like the lower class people because it would get dirty so easily. So for her to be wearing pink uh, was a bit unusual and this thus became a nickname. Uh, mm. Please don't call me Pinky, even though I love wearing pink as well. Please, that is not a nickname for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like that she does because I also am very, very fond of the color and I wear it as frequently as possible. My earrings right now. Yeah. If you have not noticed. Shout out to Spooky Spooky Bean Shop, which is Pat's niece's shop. Oh, really? Yeah, they're little pink coffins. Those are so cute. Um, I love those. Yeah. Um, Yeah, buy buy her stuff on Etsy. Uh, But anyway, so, yeah, I thought thought that Nellie Bly, the fact that she liked pink was uh, really cool because she's like a total badass and she ends up doing some really badass things and she likes pink so you know uh i don't know i just related to that a lot so uh, as she became a a teenager she wanted to portray herself to be more sophisticated so she eventually dropped the nickname obviously um she did not carry that nickname into adulthood unfortunately or fortunately i guess um So in 1879, she enrolled in the Indiana Normal School, which to me is an odd, odd name for a school, I guess. I don't know what that means, normal school, Uh, but it is now called uh, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Uh, So, so she enrolled for one term, but was forced to drop out due to lack of funds. Uh, And in 1880, 
Cochran's mother moved her family to Allegheny Allegheny City, which was later annexed by the city of Pittsburgh. Uh, Her brothers worked to support the family, and she also had difficulty finding a job because she was a woman. And despite being more educated than her brothers, she was often forced to clean houses, Um, which is not fair, although she was somewhat educated. it was very hard for her to find work. Also, like a lot of people at this time believed that women belonged in the house, so they wouldn't hire women because it was like an affront to their very nature to be, you know, they outside of the house and be working. And many powerful men found the fact that women working in factories and such to be quite appalling, you know? But like but honestly like i'm sure these women would rather be at home you know and (laughs) you know but they don't have the choice a lot of them did not have that luxury of you know staying at home and they were a lot of them were unmarried or widowed or you know her father died and she has to work to support the family you know So, okay, so Nellie, she read a newspaper uh, column entitled, What Girls Are Good For? This is the newspaper column in Pittsburgh. (laughs) Uh, It was in the Pittsburgh Dispatch, and it reported that girls were principally uh, for birthing and keeping house. So, basically, it said that you know, these women should not be out in the workforce and they need to be at home making babies, Um, which I'm sure some of them wanted to do. But like I said, like they don't have the choice, you know, and you taking away these opportunities for these women to work is not helping, you know, it's not helpful. (laughs) So, um, So Elizabeth decided to write a response to the Pittsburgh Dispatch under the the pseudonym Lonely Orphan Girl. And the editor, George Madden, was impressed with her passion, and he ran an advertisement in uh, the Pittsburgh Dispatch asking for the author to identify herself. And when she did uh, identify herself and introduce herself to the editor, he offered the, her the opportunity to write a piece for the newspaper under the, the same pseudonym, pseudonym, Lonely Orphan Girl. Um, and her first article for the dispatch was entitled The Girl Puzzle, which was about how divorce affected women. And she argued for reform of divorce laws. And uh, this impressed Madden even further. And uh, he offered her a full-time job, which is pretty awesome for a woman in that time to now she is a published writer. Um, so, so it was customary at the time for women who were newspaper writers to have pen names. I'm sure that had a lot to do with it being unbecoming uh, <laughs> to, you know, have a man's yeah. job. So, um, so she... The, uh, so Madden chose to call her Nellie Bly after an African-American character from a pop- popular song 
called Nellie Bly by Stephen Foster. And it originally was supposed to be spelled N-E-L-L-Y-B-L-Y, but her editor misspelled the name and it became Nellie, N-E-L-L-I-E. And they never fixed it because it's not a big deal. And, <laughs> there you, you know. Go. <laughs> yep. Um so so Nellie first started writing for the Pittsburgh Dispatch, fo- focusing her early work on uh, the lives of working women, uh, writing a series of investigative articles on women factory workers. But the newspa- newspaper started to receive complaints from the factory owners about her articles and uh, what she was saying, you know, it did not bode well for them. So she she was reassigned to the women's pages because there's a section just <laughs> for women in this. Of course there is. <laughs> that that women read anything else. Um just in case they get so, too close to the men's pages. What? <laughs> so that's so ridiculous, the women's pages, sorry. <laughs> women's pages. So she which was kind of cool that she wasn't already forced to write this. It was kind of cool that they gave her this opportunity. So, um, but unfortunately it was taken away and she has to write about fashion, society, and gardening, which, all right, I like all of those things. Um, (laughs) You know, and it's okay it's okay to be feminine. I'm just going to put that out there. It is okay to like those things. It is okay to be feminine, but you do not have to like those things. You know, that should not be forced upon you or you should not be told that these are the only things that you're allowed to like, but you are allowed to like gardening and fashion and fashion of gardening. Um, You know, I like overalls. So, you know, um, (laughs) So uh, she was understandably not happy with this. And at 21, she was determined to do something no other girl has done before. She's only 21. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Sorry. I just, wow. (laughs) I feel bad about myself. Um, All right. Anyway, so, so. Uh, she traveled to Mexico to serve as a foreign correspondent, and for nearly half a year, she reported on the lives and customs of the Mexican people, and, uh, her reportings would later be published in a book, in a book called Six Months in Mexico, but in one of her reports, she protested the imprisonment of a local journalist uh, who was imprisoned for criticizing the Mexican government, and the, uh, which was then a dictatorship under Perfirio Diaz. Perfirio Diaz. Um, God, I'm I'm the worst with names. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. So uh, when Mexican authorities learned of Bly's report. They threatened her with arrest, and this basically prompted her to leave the country. And But uh, once back in the U.S., she accused Diaz of being a tyrannical czar, suppressing the Mexican people and controlling the press. Yeah. Mm. Stick it to them. 
<laughs> so uh, Bly eventually left the Pittsburgh Dispatch in 1887 and moved to New York City. But she faced a lot of re- rejection from news editors who would not consider hiring a woman. You know, despite all of the awesome stuff she'd already done up to that point. But okay. All right, I guess, you know. But after four months and being relatively broke, she talked her way into the office of Joseph Pulitzer. And if that name sounds familiar, yes, he is the man with the prize. Um, So uh, so she got to the office of Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper. Uh, It was called The New York World. And uh, he gave her an undercover assignment to pretend to be insane to investigate reports of brutality and neglect at the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell Island. Doesn't that sound ominous, Blackwell Island? Right, it does. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Like, it sounds like, well, like, the, like, like, you won't be well. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Blackwell Island. Yeah. So this is what he. (laughs) This is what Joseph Pulitzer told her: write up things as you find them, good or bad. Give praise and blame as you as you think best, and the truth all the time. So, which is pretty cool. He doesn't want her to like exaggerate in any way. He wants. Even if even if it's good to to hear about it, so mm, yeah. So she practiced uh, acting crazy and making crazy faces, and uh, when she finally like decided how she was gonna do this, she checked herself into a boarding house called Temporary Homes for Females. Yep. <laughs> Temporary Homes for Females, under the name Nellie Brown. And so she stayed up all night to give herself that wide-eyed look of a disturbed woman. And uh, she began making accusations that the other boarders were insane. And then eventually one lady reported having a dream that a crazed Nellie rushed at her with a knife. So they, the assistant matron called the police to have her taken away. Uh, she was brought before Judge Duffy, who ruled that she had been drugged. Uh, but when a doctor came to examine her, he was the one that declared that she was insane. And a second doctor said, positively demented. I consider it a hopeless case. She needs to be put where someone will take care of her. And that's what I assume that he sounded like anyways. Um, no, I'm sure. Yeah. No, I think that was probably accurate. <laughs> yeah. Positively demented. Um, so okay. she realized, uh, aren't we all though? Um, yeah. So she yeah. Real- <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, she realized that it actually was not very hard to get into this place. Um, and she said, The doctors were incompetent in determining who was actually insane and who wasn't. Uh, Nellie met several other patients inside the mental institution that didn't seem to have anything wrong with them. Uh, So Bly 
Yeah. Fly <laughs> experienced their deplorable conditions firsthand. The food was terrible. It was cold when they slept, cold baths, isolation, verbal and physical abuse. Um, she also started to realize that many of the women were not insane. Uh, one woman had committed herself after she had been sick with fever and was better and no more insane than Nellie was. One woman who was German, no one could understand her, so they couldn't. Ex- she couldn't explain that she wasn't crazy. So she was just German. Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. That sounds more horrible than the reasons that they had in Chicago. Anyway. <laughs> Can you yeah. imagine that? Oh my God. No, I cannot. Wow. Oh, yeah. So, uh... Nellie eventually stopped acting crazy. She said, the more sanely I talked and acted, the crazier I was thought to be. She uh, she was almost exposed at one time when a reporter came to the asylum, but she begged him not to blow her cover. Uh, she pressed doctors for answers on how they would determine if someone was crazy, but was always brushed off. Uh, she said, The insane asylum on Blackwell's Island is a human rat trap. It is easy to get in, but once there, it is impossible to get out. Oh, my God. That sounds just, wow. Yeah. Uh, She eventually, yeah, (laughs) a human rat trap. No, I don't want to think about that. I don't like rats to begin with. No offense to rat lovers out there, but. Yeah, that sounds horrible. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, She concluded with, what, accepting torture, would produce insanity quicker than this treatment? Take a person and help a woman from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. on straight back. The the audio is getting, it's a little weird for like, I don't know how many seconds, but yeah. Okay, I'll just start over. Um, she concluded what accepting torture would produce insanity quicker than this treatment. Take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up and make her sit from 6 a.m. on straight back benches. Do not allow her to talk or move during these hours. Give her no reading and let her know nothing of the world or its doings. Give her bad food and harsh treatment and see how long it will take to make her insane. Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. Jeez. Wow. Jesus. <laughs> that's ins- I was going to say that's insane, but I mean, well, yeah. that's what we're talking about. Yes, insanity. Yeah. That's the real insanity. Anyway. <laughs> and I mean, I feel like compared to your story, this is actually not a bad place. Like they're just like making them sit for long hours and not have any entertainment and giving them bad food and they're like cold all the time. Like that's, that's pretty horrible. But like this, this was not as bad as it could get, you know, but at least she was able to expose this. So uh, thankfully her editor was able to get her out of there after 10 days. And her report was published a few days later. The public was horrified. This led to changes in the conditions for the asylum and $1 million being appropriated towards mental health facilities. Wow. That was huge at that time. 
A yeah. million dollars? Million oh my dollars. gosh, yeah. That's, the, that's, that's then money. That's not today's money. That's then money. Yeah. No, then. That's, wow, that's yeah. incredible. So one of the women Bly befriended said, ever since Miss Brown has been taken away, everything is different. Uh, sorry, let me start. One of the, so one of the women uh, Nellie Bly befriended said, ever since Miss Brown has been taken away, everything is different. The nurses are very kind and we are given plenty to wear. The doctors come and see us often and the food is greatly improved. So it seems like small changes were made, but like at least now the public was very aware of this. And this yeah. is just Nellie getting started. She's only 21 at this time. So in 1888, Bly suggested to her editor at New the New York World that she take a trip around the world, attempting to turn the fictional around the world in 80 days into a fact for the first time. So this is what I think is super cool about her. Yeah, what a, so, what a crazy uh, proposition. Like, what the hell? That's crazy. What's that? What's such a crazy proposition, too. Like, like Yeah. Well, yeah. So she was like inspired by Jules Verne and uh, oh, yeah. story. Oh, and can I also say that the Jackie Chan movie of Around the World in 80 Days is one of the best movies I've ever seen, and you should see it. <laughs> um, oh, okay. Yeah. It sounds like I made that up, but no, Jackie Chan is in a movie of Around the World in 80 Days, and it's really good. Um, he plays this like kind of Charlie Chaplin style character, and it's pretty amazing it's it's got a lot of cameos in it um but if you haven't seen it it's really great and i actually really love the movie it's long it is like two hours long but i love that movie um i've watched it i've seen it so many times um but so she was like inspired by jules verne so she wanted to do this actual around the world in 80 days and see if it was actually possible so a year later at 9:40 a.m on november 14th 1889 with two days notice, she boarded the Augusta Victoria, a steamer, a steamer of the Hamburg America line, and began her 40,070 40, kilometer journey. Uh, she took with her the dress that she was wearing, a sturdy overcoat, several changes of underwear, and a small travel bag carrying her toiletry essentials. So she packed light, which is probably smart. She's got a lot of places to be. And I'm sure they thought that a woman couldn't do this because I'm sure in their mind they were like, oh, well, how is she going to carry all of her stuff? You know, because they always assume that women need all of this stuff. But we don't need a lot of stuff. No, I mean, I can, I can probably guess that unfortunately she had to wear a lot of clothing because I always think about the clothing. I don't know about you, but I'm like, I don't want to put that's on true. a corset and all those under things. And like, that's that true. seems like a lot. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you see the pictures of her as she's like setting out for her journey, she looks awesome. By the way, she's got this incredible coat on that sturdy overcoat. Primo. Love it. Yeah. Uh, she looks great. Um, she's also, uh, yeah, you, you gotta look at pictures of her. Cause she's, she just looks so cool. Um, so she carried most of her money, which is about 200 in English bank, bank notes and gold, 
uh, as well as some American currency in a bag tied around her neck, which is pretty brilliant. That's where I would put my money. Um, <laughs> so, unknown to her, shortly after she left, the New York newspaper Cosmopolitan sponsored its own reporter. This chick, I'm not going to say, I was almost said something. I don't know. She, I don't know, know her, so I'm not going to say <laughs> I'm on Nellie Bly's side, so I'm not, I'm going to miss bitch right here. No, she wasn't. I'm sure she's a, also a badass woman for being hired by a newspaper at this time, you know. So, uh, Elizabeth, but I'll give a little side eye, you know, a little bit. Uh, uh, Elizabeth Bisland, uh, they hired her uh, to beat the time of Phineas Fogg and Bly. And so Phineas Fogg is the character in Around yeah. the World in 80 Days, the main guy. Who is he played by in the movie? Look this up, Pat. Um, but he's yeah. like, isn't it the guy from Hamlet too? Right, yeah. Also, if you haven't seen Hamlet too, you should watch it. <laughs> we, should watch that not, we should watch oh. that when my parents come to visit. Steve oh. <laughs> I remember bringing it up to my sister to watch that, and she seemed appalled. But it's not it's not a sequel to Hamlet. It's about putting on a sequel to Hamlet. Oh yeah, no, um, I know what you're talking about. I've seen it, but like a long oh, okay, time yeah. ago. I yeah. this was not yeah. recent at all, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But I yeah, do know but, around the world in eighty days too. Believe it or not, we did the play when I was in junior high. Oh so yeah. <laughs> was I was I in it though? I feel like I was, but I was not any major character. It was like seventh grade or something. But yeah, anyways. So I'm familiar with Phineas Fogg, but that's about it. So I didn't know about Nellie Bly. That's awesome. Yeah. That's yeah, it was Steve Coogan. Steve Coogan. Yeah, okay. he's great. Yeah. So it's Steve Coogan and Jackie Chan are the leads in this movie. Uh, okay. Also also Arnold Schwarzenegger has a cameo. And uh uh what's her name? Oh shoot, from also from American Horror Story. Uh who plays Misery? Misery? Oh Frances Sternhagen? No. No. Oh no, that's not her name. Kathy Bates. Something Kate. Kate something. Kathy Bates. Oh Kathy, Kathy Bates. Bates. Why am I saying Kate? Kathy Bates. Uh <laughs> is also in it. Kathy Bates plays the queen and it's pretty awesome. Oh okay. Yeah. Cool. Anyways, tangent. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's so, okay. <laughs> so the New York newspaper Cosmopolitan sponsors its own reporter, Elizabeth Bisland, who would travel the opposite way around the world, starting on the same day as Bly eventually took off. Um, so Bly, however, did not learn of Bisland's journey until she reached Hong Kong. Uh, she dismissed the competition and said, because she's awesome uh, and doesn't care about other people, she, this does not concern her. Uh, she said, I would not race. Uh, if someone else wants to do the trip in, in less time, that is their concern. God, I love her. Uh, uh, so to sustain interest in the story, the world organized 
uh, Nellie Bly guessing match in which readers were asked to estimate Black Bly's arrival time uh, to the second, uh, with the grand prize consisting at uh, first of a trip to Europe and later on spending money for the trip. During her travels around the world, Bly went through England, France, where she actually met Jules Verne. Uh, no way. Dang. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, Bryn, Bryn Dizzy, Bryn Dizzy, <laughs> then. The Suez Suez Canal, um, Colombo, the Strait Settlements of Penang and Singapore, Hong Kong, and Japan. Uh, So the development of efficient submarine cable networks and the electric telegraph allowed Fly to send short progress reports, although longer dispatches had to travel by regular post and thus were delayed by several weeks. So Bly traveled using steamships and the existing railroad system, which caused occasional setbacks, particularly on the Asian leg of her race. Uh, During these stops, she visited a leper colony in China and in Singapore, she bought a monkey. So I don't really know what happened to this monkey um according to wikipedia nowhere else in my research did i come across her having a monkey but according to wikipedia she had a monkey with her um so that's cool like one of those Um, little organ grinder monkeys what do they call them capuchin monkeys dude someone had one of those in my hometown Mm-hmm. Down at the wharf in my hometown in Monterey, someone had one of those for many, many years. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you go down there and you give them dollar bills and stuff. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he likes the dollar bills, I'm sure. Although the owner yeah. does. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Monterey really is like a time capsule. That's crazy. It is, isn't it? Yeah. So as a result of rough weather on her Pacific crossing, she was resi- resi- I can't talk. As a result of rough, rough, what the hell? Uh, As as a result of rough weather on her Pacific crossing, she arrived in San Francisco on the White Star Line ship RMS Oceanic, which is, I'm pretty sure, the sister ship of the Titanic. I know, I was going to say, Oceanic sounds familiar, yeah. Right? Yeah. It could um, be. It makes yeah. sense historically in the time frame, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, on January 25th, uh, first two days behind schedule. However, after uh, world owner uh, Pulitzer, Joseph Pulitzer, Pulitzer, charted a private train to bring her home, she arrived back in New Jersey on January 25th, uh, 1890 at 3.51 p.m. Yes. She did it (laughs) just over just over 72 days after her departure from Hoboken. Bly was back in New York. Yes. 72 days. That's pretty good. She definitely beat Phineas. Uh, She circumnavigated the globe, uh, traveling alone for almost the entire journey. Bisland at the time, still crossing the Atlantic, only to arrive in New York four and a half days later. She also beat Phineas Fogg 
which is equally badass, not, well, less equal, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> still very cool. Yeah. Uh, she also had missed a connection, had to board a slow old ship, the Bothenia, <laughs> in place of a fast ship, the Ur e e I'm not going to pronounce that, E-T-R-U-R-I-A. Uh, so Bly's journey was a world record, although it was bettered a few months later by George, uh, by George Francis Train, who first circumnavigated in 1870 and had been the inspiration for George. So uh, uh, it was bettered a few months later by George Francis Train, whose first circumnavigation in 1870 possibly had been the inspiration for Jules Verne's novel. Train completed the journey in 67 days and his third trip in 1892 in 60 days. In 1913, Andre Jägerschmidt, uh, Henry Frederick, and John Henry Mears had improved on the record, uh, the latter completing the journey in fewer than 36 days. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't she awesome? Yeah. Um, so after the fanfare of her trip around the world, Bly quit reporting and took a lucrative job writing serial novels for uh, publisher Norman Munro, uh, weekly New York family story newspaper. The first chapter of Ava the Adventurous was based on the real life travel of Ava Hamilton. Uh, appeared in print before Bly returned to New York. And uh, between 1889 and 1895, she wrote 11 novels. Uh, as few copies of the newspaper survived, these novels were thought lost until 2021, when author David Blix announced their discovery found in Munro's British weekly, uh, weekly The London Story Paper. Uh, in 1893, though still writing novels, she returned to reporting for the world. Uh, in 1893, she used her celebrity status to gain from her asylum reporting skills to schedule an exclusive interview with the allegedly insane serial killer, Lizzie Halliday, which I guess will have to be a podcast of her very own. <laughs> um, so she later in 1895 married millionaire manufacturer Robert Seaman. Uh, Bly was 31 and Seaman was 73 when they married. Um, yeah, well, what? You know, he's a millionaire. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a millionaire and obviously, obviously she's a grown woman who can make choices for herself, so. Uh, True. But it, yeah. Wow. So uh, due to her husband's failing health, health, though, she left journalism and succeeded her husband as head of the ironclad manufacturing company, which made steel containers such as milk cans and boilers. And in 1904, her husband died. But uh, according, so, you know, she's pretty awesome, but... According to biographer Brooke Kroger, she ran her company as a model of social wel welfare, replete with health benefits and recreational facilities, 
but Bly was hopeless at understanding the financial aspects of her business and ultimately lost everything. Unscrupulous employees built the firm of hundreds of thousands of dollars, troubles compounded by a protracted and costly bankruptcy litigation. Um, yeah. So she ended up losing the company. She did, however, invent a type of milk can. So that's cool that she is also an inventor. Just add that to the list there. Um, yeah. Um, she has several patents, actually, of different. Uh, but she loses the company. It goes bankrupt. Uh, so she goes back to reporting. She wrote stories on Europe's Eastern Front during World War One. Add that to the list. And Bly was the first woman and one of the first foreigners to visit the war zone between Serbia and Austria. She was arrested when she was mistaken for a British spy. Uh, Bly covered the women's suffrage uh, procession of 1913 for the New York Evening Journal. Her article nice. headline was Suffragists Are Men's Superiors. Yeah. Uh, and in its text, she ac- accurately predicted that it would be 1920 before women in the United States would be given the right to vote, unfortunately. Uh, but on January 27, 1922, Bly died of pneumonia at St. Mark's Hospital, New York City, at age 57. Oh, wow. But, I mean, you can't deny that she had a full life. Um, She was interred at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx in New York City. Uh, And in 1998, Bly was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Bly was one of the four, four journalists honored with a U.S. postage stamp in a woman women in journalism set in 2002 and like i said earlier you might remember her stories from two episodes two whole episodes of drunk history because she deserved <laughs> it uh an american horror story made an yeah. incredible character sarah paulson's character is quite incredible uh mostly about the 10 days in the insane asylum uh she has several other other credits and accomplishments Many books have been written about her. She, her own personal books, uh, movies, several movies uh, about her. And uh, I just thought that she was a very incredible and interesting person to uh, talk about. So, yeah. Go Nelly. Go Nelly. Go Nelly. N E L L I E. L I E, yes. Yeah. So I uh, hope that was a little uh, more uplifting. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was good because she did, like, look at what she did. Uh, I remember doing a report on her somewhere along the way in high, I think it, it was either in junior high or high school, but I do remember it. But uh, the only part that I remember the most is, yeah, when she exposed the atrocities at the or the unfairness at least, because there weren't that, There was, like you said, there was more atrocities going on in my story at the Dunning yeah. Asylum. So, but she still exposed those and that's important, you know? So that's, yeah, 
That's really cool. I, I had no idea about the, uh, the around the world connection. That's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was pretty cool because most people just talk about either or. Mm. Not a lot of people talk about both. Yeah. And it is, it's both the same person, you know, and she yes. did all of this before she, she, before she was, you know, 21 or what is, what was it? She was like 20 before her thirties. Like, Oh God. Yeah. That's extraordinary. Yeah. In my twenties, I was definitely not exposing uh, unfairnesses and <laughs> in any kind of systems. Yeah. I was exposing so, yeah. something, but it wasn't unfair treatment <laughs> <No>. <laughs> i i may know what you mean yes <laughs> oh man uh, well on that note i hope everyone found this episode entertaining um yeah so yeah let's, like, let's wrap this one up uh, yeah so thank you all for listening um hope you found that entertaining and uplifting go circumnavigate the globe you know expose the evils and uh follow us on instagram facebook uh listen to us please share the podcast with other people you know follow us i just started a tiktok so i'll update people through every social media means necessary I'll get the Twitter. I swear I will. Um, but uh, I hope you all enjoyed that. And stay spooky, everyone. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs>